President Biden is setting optimistic new vaccine goals to fight the coronavirus. He now says anyone who wants a shot may be able to get one this spring. Have you noticed something different about the sounds coming out of your TV when you turn on the news recently? And to mobilize more medical teams to get shots in people's arms. Something a bit more serious, compassionate, honest. Keep the faith. We're going to get this done. And I'll always level with you about the state of affairs. Thank you. A new tone, if you will. If you haven't, you should probably get your ears checked. The transition between President Trump and President Biden one most famous for his selfishness and cruelty, the other for his empathy and experience, has been starker than any since the dawn of broadcast media. The former banned transgender Americans from military service by tweet while binge-watching Fox News. The latter repealed the ban. Trump bullied a teenage climate change activist. Biden listened to her and rejoined the Paris Climate Accord. But most jarring of all has been the shift from a president who lied about and intentionally exacerbated the COVID-19 pandemic to one who has made defeating the virus his top priority. Less of this. Like a herd mentality, it's going to be. And then I said, supposing you brought the light inside the body. And then I see the disinfectant. And is there a way we can do something like that uh, by injection? And more of this. We're working to make vaccines available to thousands of local pharmacies beginning in early February. I also signed a declaration to immediately begin reimbursing states 100%. Politically speaking, this has already been a big boon to President Biden. In the latest poll we did with Change Research, we found that the pandemic overwhelms basically every other issue. The public's top demands of Biden are controlling the pandemic, getting people vaccinated, and providing economic relief. His $1.9 trillion coronavirus relief proposal is super popular. But talking about the pandemic in a humane way, proposing ideas about how to end it, clearing the scandalously low bar Trump set, that's the easy part. The hard part will be actually getting the country back to normal. Back to work. Back to school. Back to family gatherings and house parties. And prepared to deal with the long tail of consequences for more than a year of social distancing, closures, mass infection, and loss of life. Our sense of how well Biden will be able to pull it all off is only just coming into focus. So let's evaluate it on its own terms. My guest is Chris Hayes. He hosts MSNBC's All In and the Why Is This Happening podcast. Chris sounded the alarm about COVID early. It has now been a week since the Centers for Disease Control confirmed the first community transmission of coronavirus in the United States. Now, here's the CDC webpage on coronavirus. I go to it every day. This is from his show back on March 4th, 2020. And in this clip, Chris is visibly furious. This is a serious thing. It's a serious thing that needs to be dealt with seriously. And right now, the federal government is failing. We need the facts We need testing, and we need them now. We needed them a week ago. More than just about any other broadcaster, he has covered the coronavirus pandemic as a crisis that political leaders are morally obligated to defeat, not just to be truthful about. We'll assess the Biden plan, the resistance to it, and how to recalibrate criticism for a president who, finally, takes the pandemic seriously. I'm Brian Boitler. Welcome to Rubicon.
So it's been about a year, I think, uh, since you started covering coronavirus, uh, first as a looming catastrophe and then an actual catastrophe. And you've done it with a fitting, but I think a kind of rare mix of of both urgency and outrage about the lack of urgency that some political leaders have shown. So I'm wondering why you think more people at broadcast haven't treated it similarly. And if you ever find it difficult not to slip into a sort of maybe more <laughs> detached a mode of ride detachment or something, even if only as like a coping mechanism for how horrible everything is. Yeah. I, I mean, I think, I, I do think there's been a lot of outrage. I mean, I think in, uh, of, you know, broadcasters and folks on cable news. And I do think that the two are related to each other, which is that there's just a repetitiveness to it. There's an acclimation that happens. I mean, you know, <laughs> I, I've been thinking about this a lot. I'm actually writing something on this topic right now. You know, the the thing I keep thinking is, you know, human beings, our superpower, quite literally, is adaptability, right? Humans can live in the Arctic, and they can live in the Amazon, and they can live in deserts. And the reason they can do all that is because we just acclimate to whatever it is, whether it's like snow 200 days a year, or whether it's there's no water, whatever it is, we acclimate, which I think has been in some ways working against mustering the renewed appropriate outrage every day at the continuing disaster because we just are are so driven by our sort of psychological makeups our neural structure <laughs> our evolutionary inheritance to acclimate to 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 say well this is kind of how things are now and i've been actively working against that because to me it's sort of been a discipline every day to just say it is not acceptable. It is not acceptable. And I will refuse as almost a matter of like will and discipline. I will refuse to acclimate to losing 3,000, 4,000 people every day. I'll refuse to acclimate to a year of kids out of school, of long-term damages, of entire families in the Rio Grande Valley being wiped out. Like I just won't – like I'm not going to accept that. But that in some ways is like a moral decision <laughs> and, and a willful decision in how to deal with it because I, like all people, I think, find myself just sucked towards it being normal. You know, there's a, when, when you go back to the lockdown, David Wallace Wells said this thing to me when I had him on the program. This was back in March or early April. David Wallace Wells, a writer at uh, New York Magazine who wrote The Uninhabitable Earth about climate – and he said, look, at some level, right, um, during that period where basically the entire world was locked down, I think 3 billion out of the, you know, 6 billion people or whatever <laughs> were in some form of shelter in place. And, you know, you could look at these incredible images of piazzas in Italy and, you know, downtowns in uh, Mongolia <laughs> and <laughs> Brazil. It's incredible that we were able to coordinate this amount of human activity in one direction in such a short period of time. Which is also true. Um, you know, the the tragedy and the outrage here is that the all of the the very difficult sacrifices made by people have been ha, were, were squandered by our leaders, um, particularly by the by the White House and the president, to use the time that we bought collectively through our sacrifice to create a a, a better future, one like that looks like you know South Korea or Australia or a number of other countries. Yeah. Well, we're recording this on the on the eighth day of the Biden presidency. So 
stipulating that an awful lot remains to be seen. What do you make of the new administration's initial steps, the legislation, the economic and public health plans that uh, President Biden's unveiled, the the vaccination goal? Like, what's good, what's bad, and how much of all that the last administration squandered do you think can be reclaimed? So the first thing I think to think about is the vaccination issue, and there's a number of problems there. So they announced this 100 million in the first 100 days doses, right? Not people, doses. 100 million shots in 100 days. And they announced that, I think, about six weeks ago or so. And by the time that they were, you know, taking office or getting ramped up, we were doing about about a million a day. Um, Some days, even 1.3, 1.4 million. Now, Peter Hotez, who runs a vaccination program uh, down in Texas uh, at Baylor, says it's not good and it's not adequate. It's, it's too low a bar. We need to really ramp up to around 3 million Americans per day in order to um, reach three quarters of the U.S. population by the summer. So we're all- and I think there was a little there was a little back and forth a few days ago about like, were they just going to kind of rest on their laurels on the 100 million? And I never thought they were because I <laughs> look, they at least understand a fundamental thing that Donald Trump refused to, which is that all the incentives go in the same direction. This was the craziest thing, the, the, the most psychotic, destructive, both self-destructive in his own term, short-term political interest, but destructive for the country facet of the Trump response, which is that he refused to understand that all incentives and interests lined up in the same way. That it was in the best interest of Donald Trump, Donald Trump's legacy, Donald Trump's reputation, Donald Trump's family, Donald Trump's political party, <laughs> Donald Trump's future, the like everything that he wanted was lined up with doing a good job combating the virus. The failure to understand that those two things never diverged was the source of so much misery and probably the source of his loss. Mm-hmm. Biden, at the very least... <laughs> And the people around him understand that all the incentives go in the same way. The best thing for Joe Biden politically, for the Democratic Party politically, for everyone working, is the best thing for the country, which is get the virus under control as fast as possible. So at the very fundamental level, they get that. So the second facet of this is actually building federal infrastructure. The approach that the Trump administration took, both in testing and in vaccination and in public health policy was to push down to the states so that if it worked, Donald Trump can take credit. And if it didn't, he could blame the governors. This is very apparent. Very, this, is not, this is not even like a, like they basically said this, right? The states should have been building their stockpile. We have almost 10,000 in our stockpile. We're a backup. We're not an ordering clerk. We're a backup. So, you know, Jeff Zients, who's the person sort of coordinating this, made the point the other day that like, they don't have a central repository for data being fed in on how many vaccinations are happening a day. They have to build that from scratch. So they understand there has to be a federal component to this. Federal benchmarks, federal targets, you know, federal check-ins with the states to make sure this is all happening. I I think the announcement yesterday, they're bumping up these supply shipments almost immediately from about eight and a half million to 10 million a week, still not enough, that they've made the additional purchases of another 100 to 200 million vaccine doses. All of that stuff is moving in the right direction. But again, it's easy to talk about this stuff at the top line when you're talking about why is this rural county in Indiana not getting vaccine out, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Then you multiply that problem by 
thousands of counties. It's it is genuinely a logistically difficult problem, right? Yeah. It's gonna it's it's a logistically difficult problem. It requires both federal, state, local coordination. It requires, I mean, we got this crazy article in the Washington Post today where you've you got the SEIU union official in the Washington, DC area for nursing home workers talking about how surprised she was by how few people wanted to take the vaccine. These are people that work in nursing homes. Yeah. So there are so many places it can fail. The like, there's the supply chain, there's the getting the shots in arm, and then there's the human demand side component. You can fail at each of those three. Each of them are hard. <laughs> you have to basically, you have to get all three right to get a shot in an arm. And I think, I think in a, in a sort of, like, I agree with you that there is, there, there, the 100 million shots goal wasn't born of any kind of cynicism. I think maybe there was some sense of like, let's set a goal that we're confident we can achieve as opposed to one that we might miss. But that the, 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 they genuinely do understand that they've, they've got to get the, the virus under control and vaccinating enough people is, is part of that. But I think that there's this sort of liminal space that you see a lot of leaders fall into where they are getting politically rewarded for mediocre responses. And that, and that there's a trap uh, that even an administration committed to getting this under control might fall into where one or two of the steps that you were just mentioning start to fail, that the picture overall looks much better than it did under Trump, but it's still not acceptable. And yet Biden is like his, his approval numbers are good. And people say that they think that he's doing a good job and that uh, in there, there's a trap that there's like a mess we could slip into. Yeah. And we've seen that. We've seen that at the local level all over the place. I mean, you know, I think that, you know, Andrew Cuomo is a great example of someone who I think his record has been, I think the fairest thing to say is very mixed. Mi- mixed and, you know, again, with with the stipulation for him and I think also Connecticut and New Jersey particularly, like they got hit with the one of the worst outbreaks in the world. It, th- there's a lot of mistakes you're going to make under those conditions. It's been a, he's done some things well and he's done some things really poorly. It's, it's, and yet he's been politically very rewarded as if he's nailed it. Now, part of that, I think, is a recognition on the part of voters that, like, it is a hard problem. I keep coming back to this. Like, you know, we, we can't lose sight of the fact that this isn't easy stuff. It really isn't. It is quite literally a once in a century pandemic. But I agree with you that, like, I think, and I have confidence partly because of Ron Klain in all this, Likewise, the, yeah. the White House chief of staff that they're just not going to settle. Like, I again, when you come back to, like, it's politically true, I also don't think that's the way it works in national politics. I think national politics are so polarized that anything less than a really good response is not, not going to redound to his benefit. Um, so I think there's, there's, there's part of it, too. But I also think that they just understand, again, to come back to what you say, and I think it, it, it's, 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 it's a good point you make, this sort of liminal space of good enough but not great. Obviously, it's early to say whether the rollout of the his coronavirus relief plan is going to lead to legislation. But as far as like the size, the the content of that plan, what does it tell you? Do you think it's good enough? And do you, what does it tell you about how they see the next year or two or four, economically speaking? Well, I think it's pretty damn good. And I do think – I think there is a little generational thing happening here, which is that I think those of us of 
you and I are in the same age cohort and the same sort of journalistic cohort in that mm-hmm. of wh- wh- how old we were when we covered what, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, I think there is a real, and I think it's been, a, I think it has been the product of a lot of hard work by a lot of people in the wonk sphere, in the activist sphere, in the journalistic sphere, to look back at the Obama administration and say they undershot. They, it's not just that they were hamstrung by Republicans, which they absolutely were, mm-hmm. but they they negotiated with themselves and they they were too cautious. You got to overshoot. You got to overshoot. Air on the side of too big. Like the the way to think about this is the the risk of too big traditionally, as understood in macroeconomic models, is inflation. And that we haven't, we have been living through a basically 30 year period of disinflation. Places that want inflation can't get it. Yeah. <laughs> so the risk of what happens if you do too much, it's like, well, it's not really clear. Like maybe in the future, interest rates goes up and then your debt servicing fees go up and you got to deal with that inflation. But like those seem pretty small. Now, what happens if you do too little? Like people don't get enough to eat and they don't have jobs and they're miserable and debts of despair go up and you get creamed in the midterms. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like, it's just a no brainer. What, you know, which of those risks is bigger? So I will say that to a degree I find encouraging, like the 1.9 trillion and, and, and Biden, here's what's key too. Almost immediately, Barack Obama started talking about deficits, belt tightening, all this stuff. Now, every family knows a little credit card debt is manageable. But if we stay on the current path, our growing debt could cost us jobs and do serious damage to the economy. The consistent message from Joe Biden, which is don't worry about that now. All the economists tell us not to worry about it. Invest now. A growing chorus of top economists agree that in this moment of crisis, with interest rates at historic lows, we cannot afford inaction. That is a big difference, a huge crucial difference. Not even, not just that, but the deficits are good now. Like, it's radical change from Democratic It's 180 degrees. Yeah. yeah, yeah. The problem is the obstacles still remain, which is the filibuster, reconciliation. Can you get, you know, Joe Manchin and Kristen Cinema and Mark Kelly and whoever else on board? That's a really hard question. Yeah. And uh, t- to me, uh, like one of the things that excites me most about the plan also kind of scares me a little bit. And uh, I think it's a, a unknown whether it'll survive is that the Biden team adopted this idea of including automatic stabilizers in the plan. Hey, it's Brian interrupting my own question here so I can explain what I mean by automatic stabilizers. They're essentially programs like unemployment insurance the people qualify for automatically when they experience hardship. In addition to the stability they provide at an individual level, these kinds of programs also function as stabilizers for the whole economy when there's a recession. Millions of people might still lose work, but they won't lose all of their income. What Biden proposes is to increase the amount of money the unemployment program pays out and have that enhanced amount ramp up and down automatically based on how healthy the overall economy is. That way, he doesn't have to ask Congress to pass a new law every few months until the pandemic is over, and benefits won't lapse prematurely. House Democratic leaders declined to include a provision like this in earlier stimulus bills. And the fear many of us had was that if the Democrats won the presidency, Republicans would shut down the economic recovery, just like they tried to do under President Obama, 
and there'd be no automatic stabilizers in place to keep money in people's pockets and the economy from sinking further. Fortunately, Democrats won the presidency and the Senate and can fix this problem. Unfortunately, if it turns out we need these economic stabilizers, it'll probably be because our recovery from the pandemic won't be as swift and smooth as we hope. And so, you know, I think it's crucial that this not slip out of the plan as it works its way through Congress. It also kind of scares me a little bit insofar as, you know, if uh, they're learning from past mistakes, but you include automatic stabilizers if you're worried that there's maybe more turbulence in the future than the optimistic scenario might suggest, where you get the virus under control, there's all this pent-up demand, it spills out into the economy, there's a big boom, everyone, you know, lives happily ever after. Yes, I, I, <laughs> that's a good point, although I think it's also, to me, it's much more just an awareness of what the window is. There was a the big CARES package, there was the re-up of the PPP, of the payroll protection program for small businesses uh, that happened shortly thereafter, and then they stonewalled a new rescue package for months. Probably, again, probably cost Donald Trump the election, in, you know, in the end. It's yeah. remarkable that that's the case. Then they passed this latest lame, the one in the lame duck. I think everyone understands this is it. And if it, this is it, then you, I think that hedge makes a lot of sense. Coming up, what to do about the millions of Americans who say they won't take the vaccine? And why Chris says it's beginning to feel like March 2020 all over again. When we return. Let's face it. Taking trips to the post office is probably not how you want to spend your time. That's why at Rubicon, we mail and ship online at Stamps.com. Stamps.com allows you to mail and ship anytime, anywhere, right from your computer. Send letters, ship packages and pay a lot less with discounted rates from USPS, UPS, and more. Stamps.com has saved businesses thousands of hours and tons of money. With Stamps.com, you get the services of the post office and UPS all in one place, plus big discounts on mailing and shipping rates. Stamps.com is a must-have for any business, whether you're a small office sending out invoices, an online seller shipping out orders, or even a giant warehouse sending thousands of packages a day, Stamps.com can handle it all with ease. Once your mail is ready, just schedule a pickup or drop it off. It's that simple. With Stamps.com, you get discounts of up to 40% off post office rates and up to 62% off UPS shipping rates. Not to mention, Stamps.com is a fraction of the cost of those expensive postage meters. Stamps.com is a no-brainer, saving you time and money. It's no wonder nearly 1 million small businesses already use Stamps.com. Stop wasting time at the post office and go to Stamps.com instead. There's no risk. And with my promo code Rubicon, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. Just go to Stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in Rubicon. That's Stamps.com, promo code Rubicon. Stamps.com, never go to the post office again. Rubicon is brought to you by Bev. Bev is a female-founded and run canned wine brand that was created to change not only the way a product is consumed, but the way an industry and culture have operated for generations. Bev's mission is rooted in taking charge of your choices and responsibilities and giving a voice to those who have been historically silenced. In an industry that is almost exclusively male, Bev is breaking norms and creating something from the female perspective that is approachable, fun, and consumer-centric. 
Bev offers five varietals, Rosé, Sauve Blanc, Pinot Gris, and Pinot Noir, as well as my favorite, the one I cracked open at noon on Inauguration Day, a limited edition extra fizzy sparkling white wine. Bev wines are dry, crisp, fizzy, refreshing, and delicious. They have zero sugar and only three carbs and 100 calories per serving. They can help you meet your New Year's goal like cutting back on sugar or drinking by making it easy to have a glass of wine and not overindulge. Each can contains one and a half glasses of wine, perfect for when you don't want to open a bottle of wine just for yourself. Their four packs are great for gifting, hosting, and socially distant hangouts. Bev ships straight to your door and shipping is always free. We've also worked out an exclusive deal for Rubicon podcast listeners. Receive 20% off your first purchase, plus free shipping on all orders. I suggest trying their best-selling Ladies' Night Variety Pack so you can check out all of their delicious varietals. Go to drinkbev.com slash Rubicon or use code Rubicon at checkout to claim this deal. That's D-R-I-N-K-B-E-V dot com slash Rubicon. Welcome back to Rubicon. I'm talking to MSNBC host and writer Chris Hayes, who tracked the colossal failures of the Trump administration's response to COVID-19 and is watching closely to see how the Biden administration picks up the ball. So, like, what's the one thing that you think that they should be doing that they aren't? Um, that's a really good question. So a lot of it is the devil in the details. For instance, like, so there's a chunk, there's a bunch of money in there for a vaccination program as a top line number, um, several hundred billion dollars. The question of like how, how that is distributed to whom under what conditions is a really important one that is a, a much more difficult implementation issue than just like what the top line number is. So there's a story today out of this contract that Philly signed with some like random 22-year-old to distribute their vaccines. The health department now cutting all ties with this startup that was founded by a young Drexel grad student. This has all led to even more confusion and others in the vaccine field are now worried it could lead to more mistrust. I know, you know, talking to sort of big city public health experts and people that have run or worked in the upper echelons of public health departments, like they have a very clear sense of what they would do with that vaccine money in terms of contracting community partners to get vaccines out to people, particularly in underserved communities and hardest hit communities, right? You know, we've got this situation now where there's a certain degree of correlation between vaccine reticence and hardest hit communities. Mm -hmm. And that is a really, really hard nut to crack. But that's a nut you only really crack at the local level. Yeah. And that has to do with the federal oversight and implementation. But again, that's that's a really difficult thing. The other thing I would say, and this is a very simple thing. We had someone from the Brookings Institution last night who's been studying the the disparate vaccine success. And one of the points she made is just like, have lots of places, like have lots of vaccine facilities. Yeah. She made the point that North Dakota has like 50 or something for their whole population. And Massachusetts, which is four times the number of people or five times the number of people, has 60. And that like, that's a big thing. Just get vaccine center set up. But again, a lot of that stuff is, it, it's like, there's no, you know, there's this always this sort of search for like the one, the one weird trick, single magic bullet. Yeah. We had Faz on, Faz Shakir, um, who 
we both know going back years uh, from Bernie Sanders' campaign and Harry Reid's office, he conceived of this as like, do something analogous to the census. Um, it'll help in in the communities where there's a lot of vaccine reticence because you'll be drawing people from those communities to administer the vaccines. The census partners with community groups in Chicago and Baltimore. You know what I mean? Like the answer to that is, Rather than build that from scratch, like there are there are ways to connect local public health infrastructure with local groups. Now, there there are places that have richer and denser versions of that. And then and, and then the other problem again is like, is is overcoming resistance and skepticism and and worry. So that you know, there needs to be a multi-layered approach here. Like, it's so crazy to me when you think about like public service messaging. I mean, you know, this is an entire field that's probably saved more lives than any single human field of human endeavor, literally, right? Like, their public information campaigns, like, we've all seen the propaganda, like, you know, venereal disease posters of World War II. Like, what do you think that was? Like, there was a public health problem. It was hurting troop readiness. They pumped them full of a message. <laughs> about, you know, avoiding VD because they had a really urgent public interest, like this sort of community work. Like, it's a cool opportunity to to have communities speaking to themselves. <laughs> like, that's the key part. This is something public health people keep saying, right? Like, it's not, you know, like, this was true back during HIV AIDS. Like, there were a lot of different communities that needed to be reached. Hey, what's up, y'all? This is Heavy D. Whenever you have sex, you should always use a latex condom. I do. <laughs> and, you know, one person or one PSA from one perspective was not going to do, do the trick. Uh, and that's something that's definitely true here. New York's done a few different COVID PSAs over the past few months. Maybe you remember this one starring 51-year-old Paul Rudd, who tried to convince millennials to wear masks. Yo, listen, hype beasts. Masks protect you and your dank squad because caring about other people is the new not caring about other people. Yeah, although to, to devil's advocate this a little bit, and I don't, I don't know what consideration is the right one because it's tough, but if you message, go, go get vaccinated, like, look at all these you know, important people who got vaccinated, they're fine. They want you to do it. And then also people go try to get vaccinated and it's a nightmare and it's, there's no vaccine for them that not only does that compound your uptake effect, but it creates a political problem on the, you know, that's totally right. And, and, and I think the reticence to, to push demand has been the, the concern with supply, but I think you're going to see more and more. And again, like this is a real opportunity, like, and part of this is about the money that's in that COVID bill, right? Like, the hundreds of billions of dollars in there are for a bunch of things. And I, I think, like, we see this year in, year out now because of the way they built the Affordable Care Act, that you, you need to just have a ramp up of, like, everyone go sign up, open enrollment. And then without that, enrollment plummets and the market's – like, but we know how to no, do and that. You, but, like, right, but you also what, – what's, what's encouraging about that is that we actually see the input to output, like, causation – they start, you know, it's always the case that like enrollment's running at X and then it's like a lot of effort is done to tell people to go do this and they do it. Yep. And and uh, and take up increases. So having covered this as you have for the past year, have you found in, in the last few weeks or a few days um, that there's a tension between 
giving a new administration that clearly takes this seriously some time to execute uh, under like a presumption of goodwill with the fact that time isn't really on anyone's side right now? Like, is that, is, have, have, have you been balancing that intentionally in any way? A little bit. I think we, we have been with the vaccination goals. You know, the thing that was so maddening about the Trump administration was the, you know, there's, there's sort of two buckets of mistakes you can make. There's, there's sort of good faith mistakes, which can even be really horrible and tragic and lead to lots of unnecessary death, but are just our mistakes, right? People in government make mistakes. People in private life make mistakes. I make mistakes on my show. And then there's like the sort of the evil negligence, the willful negligence that was coming, you know, from the, and those are two different categories and they can each be deadly in their own ways. But there's, there was something about the, 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 the willful negligence, the sociopathic approach to this problem that we had before that was truly maddening. Yeah. <laughs> um, and evil. It was evil. I mean, it's, there's no other word for it. You know, we're now in a place of, a very difficult problem in which one can make lots of really bad, deadly, destructive mistakes. <laughs> and we're going to cover them that way, right? And we did. I mean, we've done, we did stuff about New York on the show, about mistakes the mayor made and mistakes the governor made. And like, it, it wasn't because like they didn't care. They made, they made bad decisions. They, they, they erred. They, <laughs> and we'll, we'll continue to cover that from that perspective here. I like the distinction you drew between like the good faith mistakes and uh, the the bad faith ones, both because it's been my hobby horse for a, a few years now, but also because I feel like that tells you what the tenor difference is uh, or should be in coverage, right? It's the difference between like like you unimaginable bastards versus like okay, come on guys, get it together. Like we need to do better than we're doing. Right. I thought of this yesterday when I when the reporting about the Washington Post, the Washington Post had a scoop that the Pentagon had sort of put an extra layer of checks on the National Guard commander of DC's ability to call up troops. And the explanation, and I don't, I have no way of knowing if this is a lie or not, but the explanation was that like basically they were really freaked out about the optics of troops in the Capitol, given everything Trump had said, given all the Insurrection Act. And I was sort of inclined to think that was probably correct. <laughs> Um, that that was a real concern. And that to me is an example of like an error of judgment. Like they made a mistake, but they were not engaged in something venal or nefarious. So have you given any thought to what the administration or other most likely Democratic Party entities should do if we can't get vaccine uptake uh, to the 75-ish percent level it seemingly needs to be at uh, to end community spread. If they're just like, whether it's they have uh, fears about vaccines because of uh, historical injustices or they're anti-vaxxers or they're Trump people. And you add that all up and it's not enough to suppress community spread. What's the government to do, if anything? I mean, that is a great question. I I think you, I think you view it as a problem that you have to solve. I mean, I don't, you know, again, the difference between 70 and 75%, I think is going to be that you'll have some community spread, but not like these wildfire outbreaks. 
the healthcare system's not going to be threatened. It'll be it'll be a sort of different order of magnitude in a population with that vaccination level. My my sense of this challenge, it's all hypothetical, I guess, but was that uh, you know, if vaccines are available to everyone, everyone can get one pretty easily. There's just a a, a large population of people that don't want to get it. Um, that okay, like given that they're not a risk to anybody who is vaccinated and likely immune, um, we'll just roll with it, right? And that, but like that was before I had a like lay understanding of how, like in a weird way, a legacy of the of the Trump administration's failure and global failures to contain the pandemic is these new variants that you create new variants through the evolutionary process of just letting the virus spread and letting it interact uh, with different levels of immunity so that it creates more resistant strains. And so suddenly this possibility that we have like uh, smoldering fires here and there across the country in communities where uptake isn't enough stops being just like, okay, well, look, like that's a, those are local decisions that the people in those communities are making. And it's like a global risk that as long as these, uh, and I don't know, like, I, I don't know how you fix the problem, but I also know that it's an, it's, it's not really an acceptable externality of, of this vaccine aversion. I mean, I guess what I would say though, is that cross that bridge when we come to it, you bring all resources to bear to get people vaccinated. And then you see where you are. I mean, one thing you can do is you can pay people to get vaccinated, right? Yeah. Come get a shot. We'll give you $2,000. There's some population of people for whom that would be dispositive, right? <laughs> like some group of people that are like, uh, I don't want it. I'm a little freaked out. And then it's like, oh, okay. You know what? For $2,000, I'll do it. Um, that would pay for itself, obviously, very obviously. Like the, the, the math of that totally scans. So I think that's one option, right? The other option, like the thing that I worry about or think about are like, communities that have that are being pumped full of yes disinformation on this particularly i think like conservative you know conservatives people with 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 whose information stream is fox news and uh right-wing posts on facebook and you know overcoming that which is basically going to be a kind of sociological problem I don't know how big that number is going to be in the end. I think that one of the things that we've seen actually with the pandemic is that there has actually been more unity on stuff than you would think in a polarized world. Here's what Chris means when he says more unity than you might think. The anti-vaxxers and anti-maskers and COVID denialists get a lot of attention in news and social media. And there are definitely plenty of them. And they're often very loud. But it's not quite as stark as left versus right or blue versus red. All along, the overwhelming majority of the country has supported efforts to slow the spread of coronavirus. Even in Michigan, where Trump-supporting COVID deniers plotted to kidnap the governor, her approval rating remained very high. Conversely, in parts of the country under Republican control that rejected mask mandates and lockdowns, people came around on their own when the toll the virus took in their communities grew intolerable. These trends will hopefully replay during the vaccine rollout. Demand will be higher than we think, and even parts of the country where vaccine skepticism is greatest, well, people will get their shots if the virus rages around them. If it doesn't work out that way, that's when things might get complicated. 
Through decades of trial and error, we've learned that big, overt, even coercive public health strategies don't always work and can arouse more suspicion than already exists. This is in some ways one of the original public health conundra, right? Which is like, hello, I am Oxford-educated edu- public health official. You dirty, nasty people need to clean up your slums, right? Like that, this is like the, the original public health problem. And the, the, the sort of distance between the messaging from government officials, elites, public health people, and the people that are living on, living these conditions, right? It, there is a long fraught history of it being loaded with all sorts of colonial baggage, racist baggage, classist baggage, like all sorts of stuff about like, we are here to clean up you dirty people. And then developments through the years, through a very, you know, tons of practitioners and literature about how to do this from a more community-based perspective. Um, you know, that knowledge is the knowledge we're going to need to draw on across a whole bunch of different subcultures, right? And different communities with different values and different perspectives. Um, but meeting people where they're at is going to have to be sort of a key part of the whole undertaking. So Tuesday night, you tweeted something uh, something very uplifting. You said, I feel the way I do about American democracy right now, the way I felt about COVID on March 1st. Um, so why has your alarm peaked on the democracy front now? And to what extent do you think the two crises are related? Yeah, I mean, a lot of people were like, whoa, buddy, bleak. <laughs> um, well, the way that I felt March 1st, and I would say even a little earlier, I'd say maybe February 26th, which was when Dr. Massonier gave her you know, phone briefing that said, well, I've talked to my kid's principal about remote school, and everyone's like, remote what? What are you talking about? This February 26th, like, what do you mean remote school? Kids are not going to be in schools. <laughs> that, you know, we had a very narrow window there to mobilize to stop catastrophe. And that's how I feel now. I mean, the, the the particular precipitating incident for that is just watching, you know, there was this moment on the night before the impeachment vote when I was covering it live and it was, there was like, it was like this tally where Kinzinger came out for it. And Lynn Cheney came out for it with a very, very good statement. And John Katko, uh, Syracuse, New York, came out for it. McConnell leaked, clearly leaked this story of the New York Times about how he thought it was outrageous and indefensible and maybe impeachable. But this is a big, big moment. And what we're waiting for is the watershed to see how many House Republicans follow. And there was this little moment where I thought, you know, maybe they'll just, they'll do it. They'll just cut, cut this guy off. You, you don't need him anymore. He's, you know, he's not even on Twitter. Um, yeah. And what's become clear is that, like, that's not happening. Democrats are wasting the nation's time on a partisan vendetta against a man no longer in office. And that the future of the party, that, the, that you know, the other tweet I had yesterday is that, like, we were wa- the, the biggest story in American politics right now is that we were watching one of the two coalitions radicalize against democracy in front of our eyes. And, you know, that vote yesterday where 45 out of the 50 Republican senators voted to, you know, debate the point of order about whether it was constitutional. Now it's unclear whether they're all, you know, in the bag for that position or not. Um, You know, to me, it's like, it is hard to sustain a democracy when you have the following conditions. 
a narrow but fairly robust majority that because of constitutional structures will alternate and share power with a increasingly anti-democratic reactionary minority and a kind of polarization process working on both of them and the increasing radicalization of one of those factions in the direction against democracy. Yeah. And I just am really worried about what that spells. Like, I've said this, a million people have said this, but it's worth saying again. We came so close to it being so much worse. And by that I mean a mob beating to death a member of Congress. Or a thing I think about all the time is Capitol Hill cops get spooked. One opens fire, another hears gunshot. A whole bunch open fire. There's 60 dead rioters. And then, like, what do you... I don't know what the aftermath of that looks like, man. That's like Bunker Hill. Like, I don't know what our politics does if 60 rioters get shot dead. And that wouldn't have been a crazy thing to do if you look at the images. Like, it's, it's in some ways a miracle that did not happen. Mike Pence could have been beaten within an inch of his life. Members of Congress could have been killed. The, the rioters themselves could have been slaughtered en masse. That would be top three to five defining events in American history if that happened. Yeah. And it came, you know, a month and a half, two months, whatever, after 20,000, 30,000 votes and Trump gets a second term with 7 million fewer votes than- Yes. That's the, the, the thing I keep thinking about too is like, Trump just actually wins Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin by narrow margins. Just, he, he does win them. Fair and square, right? Wins them each by 5,000 votes. Loses a popular vote by 7 million. <laughs> What exactly would were we also supposed to do with that? I think you would have to see, you know, what I think would be called for and, and appropriate would be, you know, mass mass nonviolent protests, civil society, you know, basically massing together to say like, I don't know if they say we don't accept it or just to say like we are the majority in this country and 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 you need to know we're here as you you know govern. I don't know what the right answer is, but. It's a very difficult, I mean, it, it is a, it, we are playing Russian roulette. The factors that have come together, particularly the, the sort of combination of the electoral college, these, these sort of minoritarian institutions, the United States Constitution, the, the, the spatial polarization that's happening. Like, we, we, if we keep running this, we're going to get unlucky. We, got, we, we already had it. I mean, it happened on January 6th. I mean, to me, the, the reporting about the, uh, like, this actually just fed uh, the bloodlust of a certain faction of violent right-wing extremists. I, you know, I, probably you don't get another sacking of the Capitol per se, but it's like the Senate is split 50-50. Like, how do people interpret that? You know, for all the political violence we, we have and have had. We, we have been blessed in this country despite big disagreements with like, uh, for the last 40, 50 years, like they're just, 
that kind of thing has not been part of how we expect the public to respond to being defeated politically is that they'll start killing senators or judges or whatever right. else, yeah. right? Yes. Right. Um, and that's, I feel like, the, the spooky part of this that when I see like Republicans decide, oh, you know, we can live with, you know, four dead people, five dead people in the and a hundred million dollars worth of damage in the Capitol and we'll just move on and pretend it, it never happened is that it's like, okay, well that just means like, let's figure out what, what else they'll tolerate. Yeah. And that's, that's the really dark thing is like, what, what would change their mind? What would have had to happen on January 6th for there to be 67 votes to, to, to convict? That's a dark thought experiment. The, the, let me just say, the, the, let me hop onto the other side and say that the, the, the following things I think are on the other side of the ledger. One is that like Democrats did win this improbable, incredible victory in control of the Senate, right? That Joe Biden did win by 7 million votes. Like there is, again, for the first time in American history, one party won seven out of eight popular votes in presidential elections. The, there is... You know, it is a hamstrung, you know, majority, but there is this majority in the country that is, you know, on the side of um, both sort of a center-left majority, but but more importantly, a kind of pro-democracy majority. And the pro-democracy majority, I think, is even probably bigger than those votes. I think that there's a way in which I think the capital riot and the spectacle of it were radicalizing in the opposite direction. I mean, we're, we're, we're repellent to a lot of people. Like, so if you think of it as like the popular front, right? Like spanning, you know, the <laughs> Noam Chomsky to Bill Crystal people invested in the continuance of American multiracial democracy as such, that is the, the there's more of us than there, there are of them. And, and we're on, we're right substantively. And we have more of the people, and 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 that gives me hope. You know, I, I you know, the, 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 there are places where the majority's on the side of the bad guys. <laughs> that's when it gets, you know, that's when it gets really, really dark. Yeah, I'm gonna try to tie this because I did ask this because I do think it ties into the COVID question, and uh, I think that there's a prevailing hope that if um, Biden really executes his coronavirus response well that Democrats will be rewarded politically and it'll solve or at least defer some of these democracy problems, right? That like, if Democrats are being rewarded for governing well in the face of a pandemic, they'll win elections and we don't have to worry about things like the electoral college or gerrymandering or whatever else. And I'd like to say, I believe that, uh, but the baseline assumption I carried around for like the first 10 years of my career, that good policy is good politics and that economic fundamentals kind of rule everything has been pretty badly shaken um, by the last several years. And I hope that there are people in positions of influence who realize that this kind of COVID reductionism or COVID determinism or whatever you want to call it, that get this right and everything else will fall into place, given the prevailing state of the Republican Party, is a huge risk. Yes. I mean, the way that I've come to think of it is that Doing the right thing is necessary to political success, but probably not sufficient. <laughs> um, that if you don't if you don't do a good job governing, you're screwed for sure. So you might as well do a really good job, help people, and hope for the best. <laughs> but but the idea that that will transmit automatically into political victories, I think, has been a little untethered. I mean, the people point to Florida where the minimum wage thing got 
sixty percent uh, and won, and and Biden lost the state. And it's like, well, if Democrats were more centrally committed to things like minimum wage, they'd do better. And I think there's some, I, I think that's there's some argument there. I think we saw it with like the the checks discourse down the stretch for Warnock and Ossoff. But on the other hand, it's like those are two different things. Whether people should get paid minimum wage and which people are in control <laughs> are different votes. And it may be the case that there's an there is not there is a, a widening gap between how people think of those two things. Like, I want my people in control is a more important driving question for a lot of people than like what they will do when they get there. And if if we can get the minimum wage by referendum, maybe you don't need that other party so much. That's another great point. I'll leave it there. Um, uh, but I'll close by saying I'm really grateful that um, you are where you are uh, covering these issues the way you're covering them. Um, and thanks for spending all this time with us. Yeah, that was great. Thanks a lot, Brian. Thanks, man. Emailer Chris, a different Chris, sent the following question. I understand all the frustrations of Mitch McConnell using and threatening the filibuster for everything under the sun. However, if it was removed, couldn't he use it to pass lots of harmful legislation in the future if Republicans win the Senate again? Similar to how they used the nuclear option that Harry Reid invoked to push through countless conservative judges? Would it be better to make them actually use the filibuster and make them stand there and talk? I worry a lot about what harm Republicans can do if they have a Senate majority with no filibuster. Here are a few thoughts in response. First, if Republicans win big in a future election, much as we might hate it and oppose it and try to discourage it, they should be able to implement their agenda so long as it's constitutional. That's how democracy works. And to a great extent, Republicans already get to do this. Their top priorities are cutting taxes and stacking the courts with conservative judges. Neither of those things is subject to the filibuster. And when Democrats tried to filibuster a Republican Supreme Court nominee in 2017, Mitch McConnell just got rid of it. But a lot of things Democrats and progressives care about, like civil rights laws, are subject to the filibuster. That means abolishing it won't make life much easier for Republicans than it already is, And we have recent history to back that up. Their 2017 effort to repeal the Affordable Care Act failed, not because of the filibuster. They tried to go around the filibuster. It failed because they couldn't get 50 votes for their bill. They were hobbled politically by the unpopularity of their agenda. Now, that doesn't mean the filibuster couldn't be reformed rather than abolished. As it stands, a single Republican can hold a bill to a 60-vote threshold simply by raising his hand. Democrats could try to change the rules to make that threshold apply only so long as a minority holds the floor and keeps talking, the Jimmy Stewart way, but then pass their bills by simple majority when the filibuster loses steam. That may, in fact, be where we're headed. Please continue sending us your questions. Our email address is rubicon at crooked.com. Rubicon is written and hosted by me, Brian Boitler. It's produced by Andrea Gardner-Bernstein. Veronica Simonetti is our audio engineer, and we'll be back next week.